Matthew chapter 10, again in verse 2, it says, The names of the twelve apostles are these, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. In our brief studies of the twelve apostles, we've looked at Peter, first in failure and faith. Andrew, who's called Proto, Kledos. That means first called. He's called first to be an apostle and a disciple. And he's first in humility. James, the son of Zebedee, first in zeal and sacrifice. John, first in love. Philip, first in simplicity. Nathaniel, who's also called Bartholomew, first in transparency. And now we're going to take a quick look at Thomas and Matthew and the others. We can think of Thomas, <laughs> dear Thomas, as first in dedication and doubt. We had a brief introduction to Matthew early on in chapter 9 as we talked about his calling, but we're going to review a little bit about that as well. We might think of Matthew as first in unworthiness and therefore first in grace. So Thomas, first in dedication and doubt. In brief, what do we know about this man? What do we know about Thomas? You'll recall that in John chapter 20, verse 24, he's called Thomas Didymus. And that word means twin. So we know that Thomas was a twin, but his twin is never talked about, never mentioned. We have no information whatsoever about this so-called twin. Thomas appears in all of the lists in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, which we just read. Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Luke 6, 14. His few cameo appearances have Thomas inquisitive in John chapter 14, verse 5. Doubtful in John chapter 20, verse 24 through 25. Courageous. In John chapter 11, verse 16, and faithful in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. For those of you who are, may be a little bit disconnected or unfamiliar with those passages, in John chapter 14, verse 5, that's where Thomas says, after Jesus has said, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you and to receive you to myself. And Thomas asks the question, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? In John chapter 20, verse 25, Thomas doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead. Remember, he said in those famous words, unless I touch his wounds, unless I place my hand in the nail print and in his body, I'm not going to believe. And you'll remember Jesus shows up and he says, stop being unbelieving. Just cut it out. I know that sometimes some of us would like the Lord to do 
exactly that. Thomas, in the end, affirms that Jesus is both Lord and God. We know about his doubts. We are less familiar with his courage. We are less familiar with his faithfulness, but I suspect the reason why his doubt is so familiar to us is because so many of us struggle with doubt. Do you? Do you struggle with doubt? Do you have a a tendency to always look in the darkest corners of life? Do you tend to anticipate as you think about the future, the worst possible outcome? Well, then you're not alone. But the good news is this, that Jesus helped Thomas overcome his doubts and then led him into faithful service. And if there's a single sentence that I could impart to you about this particular character, it would be exactly that. Jesus helps Thomas overcome his doubt. It is Jesus who leads him into faithful service. And again, sometimes the focus becomes so set on ourselves that we forget the kind of savior that we really have. Jesus can show up, alleviate your fear, address your doubts, speak to the circumstance and then lead you into faithful service. I've had the privilege of traveling to India many, many times. On a couple of occasions, I was led to the spots that were supported by church tradition where, according to church tradition, Thomas landed on the west coast of India in a place near Trivandrum. He landed and began his apostolic mission to the people of India. I've also been to the exact place in Chennai where they built a church, dedicated it to Thomas. And again, the earliest church um, in that part of the world dates back to the apostolic times. And according to the tradition, he made his way to the other side of India to a place called Chennai. And there he was speared to death. The next person that we're going to take a quick look at is Matthew. Again, you know him as Levi. First in grace and unworthiness. Again, we've spent some time, but I want to revisit just a few things. What do we know about Matthew, the beloved author of this gospel? Again, he's called Levi, the son of Alphaeus, in Mark chapter 2, verse 14. His name, Matthew, means the gift from God. We remember him as the least likely to be saved. You'll remember when he was called in in Matthew chapter 9, and now he's been being appointed an apostle, he was a tax gatherer. After coming to Christ some 30 years later, he wrote the gospel that we're studying here this morning. After 30 years, he still referred to himself as the tax collector or the tax gatherer. And I find that interesting. I think that one of the reasons why he does so isn't because he's particularly proud of the title. I'm going to suggest to you 
again, that it becomes a type and a picture of his self-perception, of unworthiness and grace. I doubt that anyone was more despised among the brethren. Remember what we've already learned, that tax gatherers and tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth. Evil, traitors, collaborators, rejectors of family, rejectors of their community, rejectors of the nation. Um, They betrayed and financially oppressed their very own people. They were so hated that even the Jewish Talmud said, quote, it is righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. In other words, the Talmud itself said, look, if you're going to have to give anyone a shake, it's going to be the tax collector. These are the one group that you are given religious freedom to lie to. Now, again, that's not in the Bible, so don't say, don't go, oh, the pastor told me I have, I have permission to lie at tax time. That's not what I'm saying. Decent people would often lump thieves and prostitutes and tax collectors in the same sentence. The tax collector was forbidden from testifying in Jewish courts. And since they had a reputation of being liars, they were forbidden in the temple proper and even in the synagogue. You'll remember in Jesus' parable, that very interesting parable in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, where there's two people praying, one man, a self-righteous man, the other one, a tax collector. The tax collector, the the, the so-called righteous man was, was saying, thank God that I'm not like this wicked, evil tax collector. And you'll remember the tax collector said, be merciful to me, a sinner. But... In the parable itself, in Luke 18, the tax collector who came to the temple to pray, there's an interesting little insight that's given. In Luke's gospel, it says he stood some distance away, not only because he felt unworthy, but I'm going to suggest to you because he wasn't allowed to enter. Sadly, Sometimes that situation exists even today. There are churches who basically will invite a certain kind of person to the church, but reluctant to invite the outcast or the reject. I'm fairly certain Matthew wasn't proud of his past. And it could very well be that some of you aren't particularly proud of your past as well. Perhaps you've seen things, perhaps you've done things that's left a permanent scar on your soul. Perhaps you've plumbed the depths of wickedness. Perhaps you've participated in sins that, only, that other people only fantasize about, but you've never participated in yourself. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that he refers to himself as a tax gatherer, To remind himself of God's amazing grace. Jesus chose Matthew as an apostle, it would appear in part, to demonstrate his ability to save even the most wretched, even the most vile, even the most despised person. 
But I'm also going to suggest to you that Matthew is a, a man of faith and courage. He's willing to leave everything and follow Jesus, you'll remember, in Matthew 9.9. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the other apostles basically went to the Galilee to go fishing. But not Matthew. Matthew was one of the person who said, not me, I'm not going. The point becomes this. As difficult as his past was, as horrible as his life was, when he received Christ as his Lord and Savior, he burned the bridges and he left them behind. For the other apostles, Matthew's leaving of his lucrative career would have been like Hugh Hefner walking away from the Playboy empire. Or for a drug dealer walking away from his drugs or the drug scene or the party scene or whatever it was that was generating so much income and so little life. In the Gospels, he's humble. He never describes himself. He never, in the book of Matthew or the Gospel of Matthew, he never has himself asking a question or answering a question. He is invisible. He is faceless. He is voiceless. He's the extra in the movie. He's the memorable face that no one seems to remember his name. He's always cast as the outlaw with a streak of goodness in him. If I were to actually cast Matthew in a movie, you know who I might have play him? Denzel Washington. Or maybe Clint Eastwood. You know, the guy who's kind of the outlaw, but something is good inside of him. The guy who whose humility is linked to an overwhelming sinfulness that is somehow redeemed. One Bible teacher says he saw God's grace as so superabundant that he felt unworthy to even say a word, unquote. Matthew's mentioned, like I said, in no narrative, but the Holy Spirit inspires the tax collector to take up his pen and parchment and write the gospel that we've been studying thus far. And again, I think that Matthew is called Levi because of his Jewish heritage. And again, he paints a portrait of Jesus as the king of the universe. For those of you who are somewhat familiar with the gospel that we're studying, there are 28 powerful chapters that's been included in the most important book that has ever been written. By the way, Matthew quotes from every section of the Old Testament. He quotes from the law. He quotes from the prophets. He quotes from what scholars call the hagiographa, or the sacred writings, or the scriptures. Even Jewish scholars, unbelievers, people who don't necessarily identify themselves as Christians, Jewish people who want to know what it was like to be a Jew in the first century looks to this book that he has written in order to get some idea of what it meant to be an observant Jew in the first century. And Matthew has a deep love to reach out to the lost, the despised, the neglected, the forgotten I'm going to suggest something to you. 
that he was ashamed of his old life of sin. But he was never ashamed to be seen with the people who shared his old life. He, like the woman taken in adultery, knew that to be forgiven much was a great responsibility. And so God took an outlaw, an outcast, a reject, and turned him into a man of faith and humility and compassion. This is why his story is so important. Maybe to someone exactly like you. He took a person who was in the business of destroying people's lives and then he transformed him into a person who brought the saving knowledge of the truth to those least likely. And what about James, the son of Alphaeus? I refer to him as first in obscurity. Little is known of the next three apostles. Most of what we know is inferred from their names or gleaned from church tradition. Except for one question to Jesus by Thaddeus, the Bible tells us nothing about their individual characters or personalities. It doesn't tell us anything about their abilities or their accomplishments. But this James is distinguished from James the son of Zebedee and James the half-brother of Jesus who's mentioned in the book of Acts. He has the surname Alphaeus. In Mark chapter 15, verse 40, he is called James Mikros, the less. The word Mikros has several different meanings depending on the context. In, in, in Greek culture and in the Greek language, it could mean a person of small stature. It could mean short, shorty. It can mean small or younger. In our culture and society, we have a word that we sometimes use, junior. You know that word. By the way, is it possible for senior to be very, very short and junior to be very, very tall? Of course it is. So again, it just depends on the context. It can be a reference to age. It can be a reference to height. It can even be a reference to influence. Matthew's father, remember, was called Alphaeus. And so James and Matthew may have been blood brothers because they share at least the name of their father. Is it absolutely certain? No. We might think of James as first in obscurity. If I were to cast an actor to play James the Less, I think I would pick... Pat Sajak from Wheel of Fortune. Someone who's always on the verge of talent. Someone who's always just shy of being memorable. James the Less doesn't ask or answer questions. After 2,000 years, he still remains obscure. He has no known outstanding accomplishment or achievement. We don't know a single word he spoke. We don't know a single thing that he did other than following Jesus. We can only assume that he was faithful to the Lord. We know that 
he will one day join the other apostles in positions of honor as they judge the tribes of Israel, according to Matthew 19, 28. And why is all of that important to you? It might be important to you if you struggle with being famous or being known or having a book or a movie. We don't know anything other than this, that Jesus chose him and he followed Jesus. The early church fathers claim this James went to Persia or modern day Iran. According to tradition, he went to Iran, he was crucified and died as a martyr for the gospel. If that's true, we can only wonder what would have happened to the country and to the people if they had heard the gospel and gladly were saved. We do know this. We do know that there was a significant population of Christians who grew in Babylon that's Iraq, and who were entrenched in Persia. The next disciple, Labius, is surnamed Thaddeus. He's also called Judas the Less. So what do we know about this guy, Thaddeus? He's called Labius in verse 3, Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. From now on, I'm going to probably, I'm going to refer to him normally as Thaddeus. It's interesting, the meaning of both Thaddeus and Labius is an Aramaic word, which means beloved or dear to the heart. It comes from a root word, shad, some of you know that word, if you're familiar with Amy Grant's famous song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Elyona, Adonai, El Shad, or it means breast in the sense of the source of nourishment, the source of tender affections. One of the meanings in, in the ancient world was breast child. Now that sounds a little rude in our culture and society, but it was in that culture a word that was used to describe the child who was the last to be nursed. In other words, we think of this as the person who's the baby in the family. Those of you who are dog people, when a dog gives birth to a litter of puppies, the one that is born last and that is the smallest and the weakest is called the, the runt. That's right. That's actually the kind of the meaning of this word, runt. Like the runt of the litter. Labius comes from leb, heart. Heart child. Again, it, it speaks of generosity, love, courage. Sort of like when we use the term brave heart. His cameo appearance takes place in John chapter 14, verse 22, where we read, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? And not to the world. In other words, the, this, the question that, that, that John 14 gives us is exactly that. And, and Jesus' answer is given in John 14, 23, where it says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. So what exactly is going on? 
with this question and with its answer? And what can we think about Labius, also called Thaddeus? What do we think about the question and Jesus' answer? Thaddeus is in effect asking, how are you going to reveal yourself to us, but not reveal yourself to the world? Thaddeus, or Judas the less, thought Jesus was going to establish a visible kingdom on the earth where King Jesus would rule from a visible throne. How can you be the king of the earth? How can your subjects be the subjects on the planet? How can you be the king and everyone your subject and them not know about you? It's a fair question. And Jesus reiterates the answer. Here's how people will know me if they love me. And they keep my word. And my father will love that person. And we'll come in. And we'll make our home inside of their hearts. I love that because the word home in that kind of context and instance is the word menos or meno. It means a permanent place to dwell. It doesn't mean a place where you're going to just spend a little bit of time. It's the place that you ultimately and finally call home. Jesus will establish a literal kingdom, I believe, on a literal earth, but not yet. The time's not right. At this point, Jesus was revealing his role as Savior, his divinity and authority, and this is the key. His divinity and authority would be recognized by those who love him. And that's the key. Particularly when you ask the question, how come that person doesn't recognize his authority? How come they don't recognize his divinity? How can they not see what is so obvious to you? It's because you love him. And that's the key. The evidence of that love and trust would be to those who keep his word. And that's the point that he's making. This is the evidence that you love me. And this is the evidence that you trust me. The question provides Jesus the opportunity to remind both Thaddeus and us that Jesus reveals truth to believers who love him and obey him. We might think of Labius as first in restoration and revelation. In what sense? He is the apostle who will ask the question and receive the revelation that's appropriate. Henry David Thoreau said, quote, it takes two people to speak the truth, one who said it and the one who hears it, unquote. And that's part of the point. It takes two people to speak the truth. Jesus is speaking the truth. And the truth becomes so real the moment you hear it and believe it. There are people who won't listen to the truth no matter how clear, no matter how passionate, no matter how perfect it's proclaimed. Jesus Christ was and is God and yet in his own people rejected his revelation and word. 
Someone has said, quote, if you tear out a page of a hymnal and throw it in the street, you might expect many different reactions from people who pass by. Maybe a dog will sniff the page and ignore it. Maybe a street cleaner or a neat freak might pick it up and throw it in the trash. Maybe a greedy person might think it was a rare and valuable manuscript and take it home. An English teacher might read it for its literary value. A musician might play the notes on an instrument. A spiritual person might might read it or sing it to the nourishment of their soul, the content would be the same. But the value is only for the person who's willing to receive its value. And for Thaddeus, he introduces us to what it means to value Jesus. By the way, tradition tells us that Judas or Thaddeus had a special ministry of healing. According to church tradition, he went to Syria. And this is the area that's now modern Syria of Aleppo and Damascus and that area. And according to the church tradition, literally hundreds of people were healed. And then he went further north. And by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, he was said to have ministered to people. He healed people in that country. And word came from the king of that country who had a grave disease. And according to the church tradition, Thaddeus prayed for him and he was miraculously healed of a grave disease and when the king was healed it opened the door to be preached in the entire country and this particular country became the first country in the world to hear the gospel recognize the gospel hear receive recognize Jesus as king and savior. And when the king received Christ, the royal household was thrown into a turmoil and the king's unbelieving nephew had Thaddeus beaten to death with a club, which would later become the apostle symbol. Simon the Zealot is the next person on the list. What do we know about him? He's called the Zealot, but he's also called the Canaanite. Some conservative Bible scholars believe the name is based on a mistranslation of a very interesting word. Kananeios. It's derived from kana, which can mean jealous or zealous. It has the equivalent of the word Zelotes or zealot, which is the description given to Simon by Dr. Luke in Luke chapter 6, verse 15, where he's called Simon the Zealot. The, the name is reiterated in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And you could always tell Simon in the apostolic crowd. If they ever had a group picture, he's the guy who has his knife to Matthew's throat. I'm going to suggest to you that I'm kidding. I'm not kidding about him being passionate. And I'm not even kidding about him being politically motivated. He may have been a hot-blooded patriot in the best-case scenario. 
He may have been a recovering assassin in the worst case scenario. If I were casting him in a movie, I would have the young Sean Connery play Simon the Zealot. Passionate, with the ability to do what is necessary to get the job done. He may have belonged to the radical party known as the Zealots, who sought to overthrow the hated Roman government through violent means. This group of patriots were motivated more by politics than religion. By the way, in the New Testament, there are four dominant parties that we see during the time of Jesus. Most of you are familiar with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Less likely, the Herodians and the Zealots. But those are the four main factions that are sort of providing the cultural, political, and social milieu. The zealots were guerrilla fighters who made surprise attacks on Roman outposts and patrols, and they often resorted to terrorism. And the Jewish historian Josephus calls them sikari, which is a word that meant dagger. And so they became known as the people of the dagger because of their frequent assassinations using the dagger as their, as their weapon of choice. By the way, the people who defended Masada were Jewish zealots led by Eliezer ben Yehuda, who was a member of this faction. If Simon were that kind of zealot, he would be first in patriotism and loyalty with a streak of violent passion. He is a person who politics matter. But I'm going to suggest something else to you. That when Jesus comes into his life and when he becomes a disciple of Jesus and he becomes a follower of Jesus, all of a sudden political priorities have to be sublimated and take second or third or fourth or fifth place to the things of Christ, and to the things of the gospel, and to the things of the kingdom. Simon is a person who would use that passion to bend the political will of the people around him, but he came to realize that loyalty to Jesus and submission to Jesus and his mission and his kingdom far outweighed any political responsibilities. And finally, Judas Iscariot. How do we speak of him? I'm referring to him as first and failed opportunity. Why? He's perhaps the most difficult apostle to understand. He's become the miserable symbol of apostasy and failed opportunity. He's referred to as the betrayer the one who betrayed the Lord. Some have called him the most wicked and vile man in all of scripture. Judas might be called first in treachery, hypocrisy, duplicity, and failed opportunity. By the way, there are some 40 verses in the New Testament that mention his betrayal. 
Each of them reminds us of the most incredible sin. He is perhaps the most difficult apostle to give a face to. Who is he? How would we cast him? Who would I get to play him? As I was thinking about this, I wondered whether or not it would be a good idea to keep his face invisible or perhaps most frightening to give him a face that looks like mine. We'd like to think that he's creepy. We'd like to think that he would look like Vincent Price or Stephen King. But I'm certain that that's not true. I suspect that there was something about him that was very competent and very attractive. He was the only non-Galilean in Jesus' band. His suicide is mentioned in Acts chapter 1, and his name is never mentioned ever again after that. In Dante's classic story of hell, the inferno, Judas occupies the lowest level of hell, which he shares with Lucifer, Satan. His name is common and beautiful. It means praise. Few people will give out that name to their children. Nobody wants to name their child Adolf or Jezebel or Benedict or Judas or Bin Laden. His last name is not known. Ishkeriot or Iscariot isn't his name. It's a reference to the village where he was from, the man from Kerioth. This was a small village. It's about 23 miles south of Jerusalem. We don't know how he was called to be an apostle. There's no evidence in the scripture that Judas followed him because he felt some sort of need to be free from his sins. It would appear that he was looking for a social redeemer or a political redeemer. He seemed to follow Jesus for purely selfish reasons. He was perhaps like the person who goes to church not to pray, but to prey on women or get rich or promote their product. Ironically, Jesus chooses Judas. About a year after his arrest and crucifixion in Capernaum, after a year before his arrest and crucifixion in Capernaum, a group of people gave up on Jesus and basically turned from Jesus. And in John chapter 6, verse 64, um, Jesus says to them, there are some among you who do not believe and who would betray him, John writes. John later explains he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So we know that Judas' father is named Simon from the same village Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him, John writes. David and the other Old Testament prophets, at least a few, predicted this betrayal. In Psalm 41, 9, David writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Zechariah predicted the exact amount of money that Judas would receive for the betrayal. And I said to him, 
If it is good in your sight, he writes in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. He says, and I said to him, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and I threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Those 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. Many people have been willing to sell Jesus for a whole lot less. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge to me, to you. Have you ever been tempted to betray Jesus or sell Jesus short or forget about him or walk away from him or pretend that he's not real or pretend that he's not true? You are going to sell him for a marriage or you're going to sell him for a career or you're going to sell him for money or you're going to sell him for a godless relationship or friendship. Have you been willing to betray Jesus in order to get high or stay high? Power. Fortune, pleasure. But whatever you sell them for, you only wind up selling yourself. Some people have painted Judas as a weak willed puppet, fated to be the betrayer. And that's not true. Judas betrayed Jesus, and the Bible holds Judas responsible for that betrayal. He wasn't some sort of unwilling puppet in some sort of series of events that he had no control over. Jesus does not say he was the poor victim of sovereign decrees. Jesus calls him a devil and the son of perdition. The scriptures make it clear that God didn't make Judas betray the Savior. The scriptures say that Satan did. In John chapter 13, verse 27, it says, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, unquote. God sovereignly knows all things in advance. Judas had the same opportunity that was extended to everyone to accept or reject Jesus. Judas is recorded saying one thing in all of the New Testament. It's in John, John chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. It's where a lady generously breaks ointment over a soon-to-die Savior. And Judas says, quote, in, in John 12, 5, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it, unquote. John knew the truth about him. He was a thief. Judas cared about money and the things that money could buy and the things that money could protect you from. This is evident from the fact that he stole from the common purse. He was greedy, Matthew 26, 14. Deceitful, Matthew 26, 25. Treacherous, Matthew 26, 47. Remorseful, 
but not repentant, Matthew 27, 3. You might ask, what's the difference? Remorse is the profound sorrow that you experience when you know that you've done something wrong. Repentance is when you turn from that. You see, regret is not the same as repentance. Being sorry is not the same as changing your mind. You see, when you are sorry, sometimes people get hurt. And sometimes you hurt yourself. That's the difference between Judas and Peter. Peter will turn from his sin and he will turn to the Savior. And Judas will not. On the outside, Judas seemed like a regular guy. The testimony of the New Testament writers is no one, no one, no one suspected him. Except for Jesus. Before the betrayal, he was not the leading suspect to betray him. By the way, if you're working with a group of people and you all elect one person to carry the checkbook, who do you elect to carry the checkbook? The one you trust the most. The one you trust the most. Who are we going to trust with our money? Who are we going to trust to carry the wallet? Judas must have been a remarkable hypocrite. Judas wanted all the earthly benefits of a restored Jewish kingdom, but he had no interest in personal righteousness. He had no interest in humility. He had no interest in holiness. He has no interest in having his heart cleansed or forgiven. And I'm fairly certain that Judas didn't start off life intending to betray the Lord. Perhaps with each miracle, he expected Jesus to announce his military plans to overthrow the government. Rome, for all of its power, would be no match against Jesus' supernatural power. Someone wrote, Judas kept hanging on and hanging on, expecting Jesus to fulfill dreams of defeating the despised oppressor, like a gambler who thinks every loss puts him that much closer to winning. Judas perhaps thought every failure of Jesus to use his power against Rome, brought that ultimate and inevitable goal a bit closer, unquote. Judas doesn't care about people. He's only interested in using them. Judas may think that he loves them, but his fascination with Jesus will eventually turn to disappointment. And then hatred. And that's the journey that the person who has missed opportunity will inevitably take. They're curious about Jesus. They're fascinated by Jesus. They're willing to investigate who he is. But when he doesn't do exactly what you want him to do, the disappointment turns to hatred. And the hatred will cause you to walk away. He never loved the rest of the disciples, Judas. He didn't love them. He stole from them. And he used what little resources that they had for himself. And he betrays Jesus with a kiss. This is the supreme act of hypocrisy. 
to pretend affection while giving Jesus over to enemies. This is the ultimate hypocrisy. So what does this mean to you and me? Well, Judas is the greatest example of lost opportunity. He's called to be an apostle. He's called to make a difference in the world. He's called to preach. He's called to reach the lost. He's called to follow Jesus and glorify Jesus and serve the Savior. And instead, he becomes the most despised person who ever lived. Judas had the privilege of eating with Jesus and sleeping and drinking and hearing the words and witnessing the miracles. And I want to suggest something to you. No one heard the gospel as clearly as Judas from the lips of the Savior himself. And Jesus gave specific and repeated warnings about sin. Repeated warnings to repent. Repeated warnings to believe. And then Judas turns his back on Jesus. You know somebody like that. Repeated warnings. Repeated invitations. Repeated outreach. To turn from your sin. To turn to the Savior. He lusted for material things when he could have inherited the whole universe as a joint heir of Christ. John MacArthur writes, quote, Judas was the consummate hypocrite of all time, the supreme illustration of an ungodly life that hides Christ while he serves Satan. Someone has well said, quote, still as of old, man by himself is priced, for 30 pieces of silver, Judas sold himself, not Christ. That's exactly what happens when people give up and sell Jesus short. We all know that Christians suffered horrible and terrible persecution in the first century. Nero wrapped Christians in animal skins and threw them to the lions. Others he dipped in pitch and he impaled them on a stake and he used them to light his driveway. People would have molten lead poured down their throats. Some were experienced hot brass plates were affixed to the tenderest parts of their body. Some had their feet burned while cold water was poured over their body to intensify their pain. These things aren't pleasant to think about. But the first century Christian knew that it wasn't just simply a choice that you would make. It was a journey that you would take. And they were willing to take the journey. They were called to seal their doctrines with their blood. By the way, quickly, Matthew, 
suffers martyrdom by being slain with a sword in the distant city of Ethiopia, Mark is going to expire in Alexandria where he will be chained to the back of a chariot and he will be dragged through, through the streets of Alexandria literally until his body is literally torn to pieces. Luke will be hanged from an olive tree in the land of Greece. John will be put into a cauldron of boiling oil, but he will escape death by a, a miracle and then be branded at Patmos. Peter will be crucified in Rome with his head pointed down. James the Greater beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less will be thrown from the pinnacle on top of the temple and then he will somehow incredibly survive and they will come around him and they will beat him to death with fuller's clubs. Those are the, the clubs that you would use to beat the laundry. Bartholomew is skinned alive. Andrew is bound on a cross that's shaped like an X where he preaches to his persecutors till he dies. Thomas is run through the body with a lance of Coramdal, which is Chennai in India. Jude, Labius, Thaddeus shot to death with arrows. Matthias stoned and then beheaded. Each and every one of them. Each and every one of them will experience an unspeakable death. And the lessons? Thomas, Jesus can overcome doubts and lead believers to faithfulness. Matthew, Jesus is for everyone, sinners, rejects, outcasts. James, the son of Alphaeus, Jesus doesn't need the limelight or the spotlight to accomplish whatever it is he wants to accomplish. Thaddeus, Jesus will reveal his truths to those who follow him. Simon the Zealot, Jesus is higher and greater than politics. Judas Iscariot, not all who follow Jesus are faithful to him. Or to his goals. I read this morning in my quiet time. A sentence that kept haunting me throughout the morning. Oswald Chambers said. All of God's people are ordinary people. Who have been made extraordinary. By the purpose. He has given them. The ordinary men. Become extraordinary. Not because they're extraordinary, but by the extraordinary purpose that Jesus assigned to each one. Will you be faithful to the purpose that he's assigned to you? And that is the end of our little brief look at the apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we've rushed through them. But Lord, I pray that we would rush to them when we're overcome with doubt. When we think we're not good enough. When we think that there's no position for us that really matters. When we don't understand the truth. When we choose to go in a different direction, we forsake the best thing, maybe for good things. Lord, when we deny the opportunities that you've placed right in front of us, 
And so again, like Oswald Chambers said, Lord, we pray as ordinary people that we would be given the privilege of participating in the extraordinary purpose that you've assigned to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.